Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 6, Red Sky at Morning. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing sexual assault. If that's not something you want to hear us discuss, you can skip this episode either for now or entirely. We don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourselves. So we actually watched this episode with our Bobby level patrons. And again, like it was so much fun to be able to do that. The only difficult part of watching this live with like our fans and our listeners is that I have trouble following the episode. I have to like actively stop myself from reading the chat and talking to like make sure I fully absorb everything. Like this did this is the first one that legitimately took a second watch through for me. It's kind of normal, right? Because we're trying to enjoy ourselves, that can enjoy our patrons and it's and engage with them too because they have such amazing ideas and amazing thoughts about the episode at hand. Like I feel like I need to take notes of what they're saying in the chat during it because there's so many funny things we have to get back to. But what I loved, though, is that we got to watch another Bella episode. So it was two Bella episodes in a row that we watched with our patrons. So I thought that, that was pretty cool. It is a nice little uh, coincidence, I'm going to assume. It was the patrons who picked that episode. And speaking of which, if you'd like to attend our monthly events, you can go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Are we ready for our recap? I think we are. Would you count me down? Three, two, one, go. We open on the boys, as is now a custom, arguing in a car. We have a ghost ship, and people who see the ghost ship die. And it turns out people who saw the ghost ship and die is because they may have inadvertently caused the death of a family member. Because it turns out the ghost that's killing everyone from the ship was killed by his own brother. What? Brothers dying? There's parallels that could be had. And of course, we have Bella, who of course tricks the boys and winds up stealing the thing they need only to find out that at the end of the day, much like the rabbit's foot, if she doesn't destroy it, she's screwed. So they have to find a way to save her. This time, I guess she keeps the money and also gives a ton of money to Sam and Dean, who then get back in the car and decide to argue a bit more, which is a little sadder than the first argument. Time. Let's move quickly into the long game because we have a lot of story time to talk about. We do have a lot to dig into. Something that I noticed this episode is that Bella says that the brothers are a stone's throw away from being serial killers. And this is important because the word killer is going to be used often to describe Dean in upcoming seasons. I get this vibe. I don't like it. I know it'll be an interesting story beat when they do it. At least I hope it'll be interesting. It also is just a really scary point because when you think about it, like you look at her Like I said last time, I love the idea of Bella living in this world, not being a hunter, being something else in a world where she understands the supernatural. So to have people who are in this world who purely are there to hunt does kind of give up a killery vibe. We'll be able to explore that a little bit in future seasons. But for now, we find out that Bella had a hand in the death of a family member. And this is very, very important information for later this season. And what I'd like us to remember is that when Sam asks her what she did, she replies, you wouldn't understand, no one did. This is 
every red light going off of like, I need to know now what this is because it's going to be like heart wrenching and amazing and a great story. And I just I'm really excited to get there or it'll be incredibly depressing. Who am I kidding? I know which one it'll be. Let's carry on. Sam is again the one to perform the magic spell to break the curse of the ship, so that is notable. And we have the first iteration of brothers killing each other, and the very first mention of Cain and Abel. I'm just going to say now, I have very little knowledge of the Cain and Abel story. I think I have like an incredibly baseline, like, one-word synopsis for it, and I'm purposely keeping myself in the dark on that for this. What's interesting about the Cain and Abel story as used in Supernatural, is that they take a lot of liberty when it comes to it. Let's just put it that way. With all that, shall we hop into story time? Like you mentioned in your recap, this week again, we find the brothers on the road in the Impala arguing. And this week again, we can see that John is shining through Dean's words to Sam. What's new this week, though, is that Sam seems to be taking on a very Dean-like attitude. Up until now, if you were to tell me there is a scene where one brother confronts the other about shooting a demon unnecessarily, it would be Sam talking to Dean, clearly, because who else would go a little gun-happy? It would be Dean. So to have Sam be the one who did it and Dean calling him out and Sam kind of like playing coy almost, like a bit of Dean's sarcasm there, too? It felt really weird, and then to have Dean kind of revert to John a little bit, it just felt like a weird, like, everyone's moving down the chain one seat. (laughs) Like you said, it's exactly that. You've got Dean acting like John and Sam acting like Dean, and it just doesn't feel like a really good setup for good things to happen. Not at all! (laughs) Well, let's wait and see what happens in this episode anyway. On the bright side, they managed to get to move a little bit past it at the very least, because when Sam sees Dean hyperventilating over the Impala getting towed, he runs to him to make sure he's okay. The one thing we've learned about these two is no matter how bad shit gets, their brotherly connection will always kind of come to the top. We've seen this as far back as I still say one of my favorite episodes of Scarecrow. That is a very clear indication of like, no, no, my brother needs me. I'm going to go out of the way to help him, even though I am trying to make my own path. This is very much that, even if it's something that I know to Dean is life and death, but to most other people is just it's a toad car. We can deal with this. <laughs> it's still it shows that Sam really does care for Dean at the most base instinct level. I really appreciate what you just said. I want to pick up on something that you said that, you know, it's just a toad car. We can deal with that because it's, it's truly played for laughs right in the episode. But the reality for the brothers, to me, is a little bit different because they quite literally live out of that car. Everything they own is in that car. So losing it isn't really as funny as it's made out to be. I'd be devastated if I lost my home, and I think that this is what Dean is going through in that moment. And I think that it's, it's lovely to see Sam there for him. I know that the discussion has been brought up in different media around our podcast and our listeners and our viewership, that there is some reading of Dean as being part of the autism spectrum. I've worked with children with different disabilities in the past, whether through uh, my past jobs and through summer camps. There is often a connection to physical things that is so much stronger there. I am not a medical professional. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to start spewing why or how. But it is something that has been observed. And a lot of times when I work with people who do work more closely with children like this, they explain why there is a connection to physical objects like this. 
I think reading into Dean in that same way and seeing how it's not just like pissed off. It's actively an anxiety attack that he's going through in that moment. It's just a little bit more than just like, oh, dude, where like I was waiting for a dude, where's my car joke? And then we have like actual hyperventilating the bending over the head between the knees like he was a minute from lying on the ground in the fetal position, like unable to cope. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And it's definitely not something that I had thought about before, but it's uh, it works. I think it fits. It fits really nicely. If we move on to the next scene with Bella, because this this episode is very Bella centric. Dean is asking her, what made you like this? Did daddy not give you enough hugs? I'm sorry. But with Dean's upbringing, why does he go there? Because Bella immediately picks up on it and she calls him out. She tells him, you know, like, I don't know. Did your daddy give you enough? And Drew, in that moment, <laughs> on your second rewatch, like, I don't know how you felt on that second rewatch, but like, you can just see the pain on Dean's face in that moment. Like, I feel like, again, Jensen Ackles kind of takes us on a journey here, much like he did in Playthings when Sam said that, you know, he's very butch and that people probably think that he's overcompensating. And I really feel like both of these moments are rooted in the same issues for Dean, which, you know, is his father's approval and his father's love, which were always conditional. Yeah, I mean, we have this moment here, which... I think on the very surface just looks like, oh, you were one up by this other character who is kind of playing your adversary this episode. But then you have the deeper level, which is really the realization of what was just said to him. So you see him being defeated. And at first it's, oh, ha ha. Then it's, oh, oh, Dean. It's interesting because it's such a similar face to that one that he made in Playthings. It shocked me this time around, actually. But I think every scene between Bella and Dean is just so good in this episode. Like, she is the perfect foil for Dean. Can we actually talk about that scene when Dean and Bella are together and Dean actually comes down the stairs in his tux? We could talk about that scene for hours. Continue. Well, my first question is, like, what did you think while you were watching it? Because I have some thoughts, but I want to hear, hear yours first. I think in the first viewing, and again, live viewing, we're having fun, we're chatting. Right away, I went for the comedy of it. I love that they throw in, like, a little allu allusion to the James Bond theme as he does it. There's that great remark where she's like, we should have angry sex. And he's just like, I don't know how to respond to this. But it was really on the second viewing when you kind of get the different layers of this. It's the fact that this is a literal role reversal of such a cliched scene. I ask every listener to stop for a second and think about someone walking down the stairs to be revealed wearing something pretty. And it is almost always a woman on prom night. That is the most typical version that I can think of. I can't think of any others. And then here you have that full reversal and a character who is has so much trouble not being the manly man to be put in that scenario, even if it, that isn't the one that really draws your attention right away, is just so interesting. And then to flip the end, kind of as we've talked about in the past, there's this level of Dean being so macho that when he is not the one being the macho one, like I can't think of the word to use in this scenario, but not the one in control of a romantic scenario like this, where there's kind of an illusion, oh, I mean, an illusion to sex, she's pretty blunt about it. But the fact that he's not the one hitting on her and suggesting it, and she's just outright like cutting out, like cutting out the middleman right, right to the punch, like we should have sex. He doesn't know how to handle it because he's never really not been in control, I feel. 
yeah, I think that he doesn't quite know how how to handle, I guess, flirting with a woman who he knows wants to sleep with him, I guess. Like, has openly said so. It doesn't seem like he's distraught by it. He just doesn't know how to process it. Like, we've seen, we've seen Dean uncomfortable scenario, and he then retorts with a joke and tries to kind of take control again. But here he's in a position where that would be the same thing. But rather than being, like, dis- he's disoriented and just goes, I don't know what to do next. I want to kind of go back to what you talked about, like, the, the fact that in most media, it's usually a woman coming down the stairs to, like, a man who's like, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. And for me, like, the most memorable moment of that was She's All That. I mean, I know that we have a lot of of younger listeners. This is a movie from 1999. If you are into like those late 90s, early 2000s movies, definitely a classic to watch. I guess we could go into how like it has probably shaped a lot of media or or particularly rom-com type media that came after it. And I really think that this was a particular call to it, in my opinion. For sure. I also find it interesting that there was a, a gender swap there, that it was Dean coming down. And then about the second thing that you mentioned, one thing that kind of, that was highlighted by one of our listeners, by one of our patrons, was that for someone who keeps making sure everyone around him knows he likes to have sex with women, he sure gets pretty uncomfortable when a woman propositions him openly. It's almost like he needs the show of chasing her to prove he's straight before the sex, or else it's not worth anything. As a man, what are your thoughts about that? I think it's also just a commentary on, like, modern male-female tradition. Like, the show does tend to play towards a lot of those traditions. And this is very clearly one of those traditions being broken. So often we are taught in media that as a guy, you're the one doing the flirting and picking up the girl and taking her home and propositioning sex. There's even movies today that still play off the whole, like, a women... A women. (laughs) That still play off women asking men for sex or being outright, you know, horny is like, whoa, that's wild and crazy. But, like... I'm I'm sorry, it's normal and human in nature, and this is just as human and normal, but it's just a matter of Dean, who was raised off of the manly man, you know, TVs and movies of his childhood. This is foreign territory to him. This is foreign territory to most people, because unfortunately, even women I know who have admitted to me, like, hey, I'd like to just go out tonight, meet a dude, and have fun, they don't feel like they can for so many reasons. A lot of it, too, is just that media has taught us that women don't do that. Something that I find interesting with that idea of subverting expectations of gender role is that a little later, there's a moment where Dean is trying to, like, answer to Bella by, like, sparring with her, basically. And she replies, very Oscar Wilde, I'm sorry, but she could have picked any writer, literally any writer. And yet she picked the one who was famously tried and convicted for having sex with another man. There are other writers you could have picked who would have, one, been more well-known, thus the audience would have gotten the joke quicker, and more likely to suit the, what some people believe Dean to be as a chauvinist. But Oscar Wilde is, while not the deepest pick, is still a deep cut. And, like, 
really? That's a little obvious. And I love it. What I'm trying to say is that she could have said, you know, there's a, there's a reference to Dickens in this, in this episode. It could have been anybody, but no, let's pick the one writer that we know for sure had an affair with a man. It's one of those things that kind of like makes my blood boil a little bit, like more on a critical side, because, you know, again, if you believe what the cast and crew has been telling us for years, there was no one trying to hint that Dean was queer. Yet we have references to Oscar Wilde (laughs) right there in season three. So I, I have issues. Then as we find out that Bella saw the ship and that she needs help from the boys, I really find Dean's reactions to be like his, his chain of reactions, like his, his spectrum of reaction to be really fascinating because I loved how soft his voice got when he hears her say that like she saw the ship and he goes, you what? Like, it's just so soft. And then he moves on to telling her that it's her own damn fault and they won't be helping her. And then she ends up telling them that, you know, she'll just do what she's always done and she will deal with it herself. And then when she says that, I just saw Dean's own hyper-independence there. So I guess, because you've been talking about Bella being a foil for Dean, so I have a question for you. Do you think that Dean and Bella argue because they're too different or because they're too similar? Too similar? They're, they're very, very similar. They do have their differences. But I think on a very surface level, they have a lot in common. Then there's like a layer where they differ, which I guess you would call like the deepest, deeper layer. But on the deepest level, they are also very similar. So to give like a brief example of each side, I'm going to sit here for too long. On the surface, they are both very open about the way they, like the way their humor works, the way they make fun of each other, the way they kind of like to belittle someone else. The way I, I would almost say chauvinism in a way, in the way they're both kind of just open about what they want and who they want. On the deeper level, there is the difference of like, you know, oh, we're doing a good thing. We're helping the world versus Bella, who's just being greedy and wants money. Where Bella's like, no, I'm just trying to survive in a crazy world. You guys are out there killing for the sake of killing. So there's the different in beliefs. But then on the deepest level, they are two incredibly independent And while self-centered, they still have a soft spot. Like, you look at the way Bella is, you know, scamming everyone out of their money. But she still, like, kept connections with people. And there's, like, that, like, kind of, like, a weird, there's, like, a bit of heart to her that I feel like we're going to learn more about. And I feel like as we learn more about Bella, we're going to see her tie more into, like, Dean's core. I like that perspective. I really do. I, I have, a guess, a slightly different one, but that doesn't quite contradict what you're saying. I think that they're damaged in the same way. Thank you. <laughs> that, that is a lot better of what I was trying to get across. I think you're right. That's what I was looking for. We don't know yet the, the things that Bella has been through. You know, the fact that their traumas are manifesting in the same way, I think is very telling. And, you know, even later he tells her that she's so damaged and she replies that it takes one to know one. Which is such an amazingly deep version of what you were trying to say. Like, you're right, that really gets the point. But also in the most childish way, which is so very both of them. Well, because they're both emotionally stunted in their own way. Okay, before we move on to critical time, I I just, I want to quickly go over the last moment of the episode where Sam and Dean are in the Impala. Actually, you know what, maybe let's talk about how we first side completely differently uh, during the live watch. How about you start by telling us how you understood that moment and who you empathized with the most? 
Right. So here we have Sam and Dean having an argument where it really kind of starts with Dean opening up. And I know the perspective is that he's kind of opening up very slowly. He's kind of passive in the way he's doing it, but he's at least trying to start a dialogue, which with the right partner, i.e. a brother who loves you, could easily turn into a proper conversation. But Sam just turns around and gets angry at him, which again, through rewatching, I have I feel that Sam had every right to be mad. But when someone comes to you and is ready to open up, that is not the time to turn around and slap them in the face. So I very much connect to Dean in this moment of being too afraid to come out and say something and then trying to find a way in to get to the core of an issue. But then the other person not being receptive and you just shut down completely. I have some thoughts about the fact that Sam wasn't ready to receive and that Dean was trying. Like, I have some thoughts about that that we'll get to later. I just want to explain <laughs> why I empathized with Sam a lot in this moment. Because as much as I absolutely understand how it feels to be shut down when you're trying to get close to somebody, I just want to mention, because we haven't talked about this yet, but Sam was basically just sexually assaulted by Ms. Case. And this compounded with him feeling like he's completely losing control over his life because Dean is dying and he can't figure out how to prevent it. What set him off was Dean kind of saying that, I see what you're going through. And I, I really think that Sam disagrees with that. Sam doesn't feel like Dean sees. He, he feels alone. And it scares him because that's the loneliness that he's going to have to live with after Dean dies. So I, I understand why he got mad. And yes, of course, that was... 100% the wrong thing to say to Dean. Like, I don't want to defend what he was, what he did. Like you said, he, Dean was trying to reach out to Sam and he got pushed away and now he's shutting down again. As much as Dean was in the right to start here, an important part of speaking to somebody is making sure they're receptive to it. You know, it sucks when you have that moment of clarity and want to bring it up and the other person is not receptive. You can't control everyone around you. And Sam was definitely, like, not in a place for it. This whole episode is a lack of consent. <laughs> it's filled with <laughs> lack of consent. Oh my god, yes. Right? Like, there's... Anyway, we'll talk, we'll talk about what Sam goes through, but then there's, you know, Dean not asking for consent before having this talk with Sam. There's... So it, it just seems fitting, almost, that that would happen at the very end. Weirdly well-written end of the episode like really let's segue into critical time with this let's go so who do we have behind the writing and directing for this episode this is an interesting one because we have two main creatives the writer and the director for whom this is their only episode in the series really so the writer is lawrence andries and I could be wrong, but I believe that this is the first time we have a black man writing for Supernatural. I'm going to say he did a good job, so thank you. And then the director was Cliff Bull, who, again, only ever directed one episode in the series. And I will just mention that he passed away in 2014 at age 79. The two of them did create something really good. I really enjoyed this episode, both from a uh, composition, the way it was shot, the way it was told. I know it was brought up during the live show, the idea of like, drowning being one of their someone's biggest fear and like this whole drowning on dry land type thing with like the water spewing is like absolutely horrifying like that is like a new level of scary 
And I'm not afraid of drowning, but that is horrifying. That is enough to fuel my Virginia Wolf dreams. Nightmares. Oh, no. <laughs> yep, definitely. Speaking of drowning on dry land, would you like to tell us a little bit about the lore in this episode? So, ghost ships. They are very strange because unlike most of the things we've discussed in the lore previously, they exist in two different worlds. We have, of course, the more famed ghost ships. I feel like if I say ghost ships, even this episode referenced it, which would be the Flying Dutchman. But then there are also some spookier examples I'll get to later, such as the Mary Celeste. Now that I've wet your appetite a little bit there, let's start with the Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman kind of fills the void of the classic ghost story. So the Flying Dutchman never actually existed. There was no ship by that name that has ever sailed. It was essentially just the idea of a ship being seen out at sea. It was a ghost story told among sailors. It was said if you saw the Flying Dutchman, bad luck would fall upon your crew or there'd be death. The story varied. It still to this day is a commonly told tale among sailors, I'm told. But most ghost stories tend to start like this. There is, however, the other side of the ghost ship stories. The Mary Celeste, for example. This is an actual ghost ship. This is an actual unsolved mystery to this day. The Mary Celeste left port, and a month later, almost to the day, was found alone, floating in the ocean, the cargo intact, the ship in pretty rough shape, all the lifeboats were gone, and not a soul to be found. There were no storms in any of its sailing routes or paths that would have led to an incident causing them to have to leave. Nothing was stolen, so if this was something like, you know, privateers or pirates robbing them, you know, the alcohol would have been taken. They were carrying alcohol. I mean, come on, that is like number one commodity you want on the seas. And to this day, none of the crew has been recovered. None of the crew has been found. No evidence of them. And this ship was just alone, sailing. Okay, I need historical context. When was this? Unfortunately, a little more recent than I think you want to hear. Oh, no. <laughs> So the Mary Celeste last left port in November of 1872 and was found in December of 1872, as I described, basically abandoned the sails half uh, raised, sort of just floating aimlessly. They were actually discovered by another ship that was in port with them the day they left. So they this crew literally saw them leave and I'm assuming wished them like a you know happy, happy sail only to find, well, nothing. And it left what port? Like, was it a French ship? Like, where was it going? Like, it left port from New York. What kind of ship was it? Was it cargo or passengers? It was cargo. It was a sailing crew taking a cargo ship from New York. I don't seem to have their destination listed here, uh, but they were mostly an American and Canadian crew because the ship itself was actually home to Nova Scotia initially, but it was carrying... I know it's alcohol, but I feel like it was a very like specific. It was like alcohol that was still being like fermented kind of thing. So I know that one of the theories on its disappearance was like the fumes from the alcohol fermenting caused them to go like crazy or something or like caused them to get drunk. and think there was an issue. Well, thank you for fueling my nightmares. So I figure with as weird as the ghost ship thing is. And again, the interesting thing is some of the ghost ship stories like the Mary Celeste have then evolved into their own ghost stories like the Flying Dutchman. So some of the traditional ghost ships do receive their stories and their names from actual ships that were either lost or in this case found weirdly. But I figured I would share one other small piece of information that I wanted to get out there, which is the title of this episode, Red Sky at Morning. So this actually comes from a longer quote specifically, Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, Red Sky in Morning, Sailor's Warning. There's actually some science behind this, which is kind of interesting. Originally, and this is like a quote from, again, the 1800s, 
it was kind of just like hearsay among sailors. But I guess just as you sail enough, you kind of learn these like pick up on these habits or these like signals. And the reality is that a red sunset indicates drier, dustier air, which usually results in clear conditions the next day versus the red sky in the morning, meaning the dry conditions have just passed, which means you're more likely to get rain during the day. You know, I totally believe these stories because I every day I used to. So on my on the road to my high school and well, my elementary and high school, basically, and which is now my son's school, we always had to pass by a lake. You know, it was like a small stretch of road that was by a lake every day that the lake was completely still the following day it would storm. So yeah, there are a lot of examples of this kind of thing where natural phenomena that we now know there is some science behind. And I actually do have someone in meteorology we could interview if we want to really dig into this kind of stuff. But there are a lot of things where, just like the red the red sky and morning thing, there is a scientific belief to why this would lead to more likely to have a stormy day. Oh, that's amazing. So a lot of them do contain legends and superstitions that were kind of rooted in beliefs that were later discovered to maybe be a little more accurate than just uh, superstitions. And I would like to, because I've been asked by many uh, listeners to suggest a podcast, I'm going to suggest if you want a more in-depth view of uh, sailor superstitions to check out the podcast Spirits, specifically an episode on sailor superstitions. And I will be including a link to it in our show, our, uh, show description today. Thank you so much, Drew, for all of this and for answering all of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully a few nightmares, unfortunately. I'm sorry. <laughs> Speaking okay. of I'll some nightmarish me. scenarios, do you have some critiques in this episode you'd like to discuss? Oh, my. Uh, that what, what a segue. I would like to talk about Sam and Gertie because we didn't quite talk about it in story time because I'm not sure how much it truly brought to the characters. But I do have some questions about this, because what Gertie does to Sam in this episode is really nothing short of sexual assault. And I, I don't have much to say about this, frankly. I just want to call it what it is. Just because it's done by an old lady, or just because it happens to a man, particularly a very strong man, or, or just because it happens in public doesn't make it anything other than sexual assault. And I just think that this is another instance of the show using sexual assault on a man as the punchline of a joke. And it's cheap. Yeah, it really adds nothing. I mean, like, it really just felt like filler, that entire, like, Sam and Gertie interactions. Like, I forget, do they ever, like, get anything out of that interaction that makes it more relevant? She does explain to Sam that she feels like the victims had it coming to them because of what they had done. But I mean, what could have happened is a true friendship between the two instead of whatever this was. I mean, OK, I'm going to hijack here a little bit because I already have my my plan to crossroads, even though my original one got stolen by you. Uh, we'll get to that later. But like as a tetriary crossroads, I think I would have loved to the illusion of something like sketchy going on with Sam and Gertie and like finally have like Dean, like find them alone in a room together. And they're like sitting there with like a drink each and putting a puzzle together. And Sam's like embarrassed because they're making like puzzles or knitting or something like even further role reverse. And like, Oh, it wasn't a sexual interaction. Like she was being very cutesy with him. And the end result was they're just friends and they share this really weird old lady hobby that Sam now likes crocheting. It could have been, a million times better and funnier and not required sexual assault. 
The one thing that I will take offense to in what you said is when you called crocheting and knitting an old lady activity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And we have listeners who literally have come to our live show while crocheting and knitting. I'm a jerk. In case, in case you didn't know, people listening, I am an avid knitter. I haven't been able to knit as much as I'd like in the past year or so, but I love knitting. I love fiber arts. And so it's not just old ladies doing if it. I, if I can remove the foot from my mouth and correct myself in a hobby that is traditionally portrayed in media by an older generation, but in reality is done by many people, and I myself, as a creative type, am quite jealous of it. Now that I've reflected on my poor choice of words, shall we reflect on the episode as a whole? Yes, I would love that. I was thinking about how out of sync everyone is in this episode. No one is on the same page at the same time. You've got Sam and Dean, Bella and Dean, Sam and Gertie, and even Bella and Gertie. And it sort of made me think of all the times in my life where I've felt out of sync with the people closest to me and how helpless it makes me feel. I'm laughing out of uncomfortableness because when that happens, I never, like, it's, it's so uncomfortable. I hate it. Because either you or the other person always ends up saying things that you regret, right? So my call to action this week is to be more transparent about where I'm at because I can't make people communicate with me but I can be sure to be clear with them and with myself, really, about how I feel about a certain situation. I think it's important to remember when you, and we even saw in this episode with Sam and Dean's final argument, you can't control other people. You can only control yourself. What about you, friend? Thank you for asking. So this week, and I realize now I've got a weird theme going with these, and I really wonder what that says about me, but maybe it's the writing of the show more, and we'll discuss that maybe off air. But I feel like the interactions between Dean and Bella in this episode were very combative and it felt like a game where Bella won most times, but it was who could get the last word in, who could end with the best zinger. And I feel like as much as I'm rarely into those types of conversations, I do often find myself in a conversation where I almost stop listening because I'm too busy thinking about what I'm going to say next. And I think that there are times where I've legitimately missed out on important conversations or reacting to something in a more genuine way because I was too busy crafting the next chunk of this conversation in my head. Like I almost go back to when you're in school and your teacher's like, Hey, we're going to read a book today. And then you start counting how many paragraphs away you are until it's your turn. So you can rehearse it. And then by the time you've read your, your part, you have not heard anyone else's all day. So you may as well have not read the book at that point. Like I, that's a teacher problem, but also I think a student problem. The call to action for myself is to, again, shut up and listen, but also shut up in my own head and listen. There's definitely a theme there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to try to get away from it eventually. (laughs) As somebody who's conducting hermeneutic research, which is basically like the art of understanding people, I feel like I've learned to listen in a way that is very different from what I used to listen But I just want to say that I absolutely agree with you and that listening to people, actually listening, one, is not easy because we're not taught to do it, and two, takes practice, and three, you also have to be not afraid of silences because while you're taking in all that information from them, it also means that you're, like you said, you're not thinking about the next thing that you're going to say. 
And so sometimes like there's a pause in the conversation because you're still reflecting on what they've said to you. But that pause doesn't mean that the person has nothing to say or that you have nothing to say. It means that there's a moment to think, a moment to be deliberate. There's a moment of reflection. And that's not a bad thing. You're very right. And I, I notice I've, it's something you may have noticed and our listeners don't see us all recording this. But I tend to read the notes as Mary speaks to me because it really does force me to like take it in both auditory and visually. So I'm not missing things that I need to respond to or I need to discuss. Well, how about we go and listen to one of our community members? I'm ready to shut up. This week, we have a voicemail from Colette. Hey, Marie. Hey, Drew. My name is Colette, and I'm a big fan of Supernatural and a huge fan of your show. I've been listening to it to and from class for the past few weeks, and have greatly enjoyed your input. I spend way too much time overanalyzing Supernatural, and I am thrilled to have found your show to assist in that and to have found a community where I can do so. I listened to your episode on Season 2, Episode 2, Everybody Loves a Clown, a couple weeks ago, and there are a few things that have been living in my mind rent-free ever since. You mentioned that Dean is working on the car as a way to distract himself from his father's death and to process his grief, which is absolutely true. However, I do think it goes much deeper than that. As you both stated throughout the course of Season 1, John is often likened to God throughout Supernatural. This comparison gets more and more clear as the show goes on. He is the god of Sam and Dean's universe, especially Dean's. Even after Dean lost some of his faith and trust in him in the last few episodes of season one, that remained true. In a similar vein, Dean holds sacred the idea of family. The perfect, angelic mother who was tragically taken, the strong, protective father god that Dean must obey, and the vulnerable baby brother who Dean needs to protect and care for. Of course, all these mythic figures that Dean perceives are exactly that, myths. Yet it is still incredibly important to Dean's worldview. Dean has never had faith in actual God, but his relationship to his family definitely has a strong religious tilt. The Impala is inextricably connected to John, and as such, it becomes a religious object. This is furthered by the fact that throughout the show, they establish that the car represents family and home the things Dean holds sacred. They explicitly tell us this in Swan Song and Baby, as well as other episodes, which I won't list so as not to spoil too much. Therefore, by rebuilding the car, Dean is not only destructing himself, but he's also physically rebuilding the manifestation of his family and of the Father God. By rebuilding the car, he is putting his family back together. For Dean, this could definitely be a religious ritual. This fact is what makes him destroying the car at the end of the episode so jarring. Every time I watch that scene, I flinch when Dean first takes the crowbar to the car. I am upset that Dean would do that to Baby and also worried for him. Knowing how much pain Dean must be in in order to enact such violence and destruction against his most beloved possession. In that moment, he's not destroying the car, but his emotions have caused him to attempt to destroy the image of the Father God. So we must ask ourselves, why go to such lengths? Is this outburst due to grief or to anger because of what John said to him? I think it is pretty obvious that it is the latter. If Dean were grieving in that moment, he wouldn't have decided to destroy the one thing he has left of his father. If Dean were angry for what he had said, destroying the sacred object of the father god makes perfect sense. 
In light of what John told Dean, Dean began to see the cracks in his image of the perfect family that he had cherished for so long start to fall apart. Dean had lost his faith in John completely, at least in that moment. He is willing to destroy the sacred object, the physical manifestation of his family, because the image of that family is already destroyed. The symbolism of the car in this episode is further complicated by the fact that, that the car, at times, represents Dean's mental and physical state. It happens several times throughout the show that when Dean is experiencing physical or emotional trauma, the Impala reflects that. We see a great example of this in Season 2, Episode 1, In My Time of Dying. And Sam tells Bobby that they will rebuild the car even if there's one good part, projecting his fear and desperation to save his brother on the car. By destroying the car at the end of the episode, Dean is giving in to his grief and manifesting his own emotional and physical turmoil. Yet, when he does eventually rebuild the car, his faith and trust in family is rebuilt, and he has taken the first step toward healing. It is important to note that Dean rebuilt the Impala with Bobby's help. And in the course of this episode, Dean meets several new people who will become members of Dean's found family. This is taking place in an episode where found family is a strong theme, as exemplified by the Carnies. Perhaps he is not simply rebuilding the discarded image of his blood family, but has rebuilt his perception of family and is moving forward and focusing on his new found family. That is a discussion I believe would be very interesting to have. Either way, the Impala and Dean's relationship to his family whatever that might mean, are extremely tied. Of course, all of this recontextualizes Dean and John's interaction and Dead Man's Blood, where Dean is chastised for not caring for the Impala properly. John says he wouldn't have given Dean the car if he wasn't going to take care of it. What Dean hears in that moment is that he has not been properly caring for his family, Sam, and that he should not have been trusted with him. It is important to note that this interaction occurs right after Sam and John have a disagreement. John is blaming Dean for Sam's behavior and punishing him for it. I could go on about the symbolism of the car in Supernatural and its relationship to the brothers and their family, and to Dean in particular. The car is a very important facet of the show, and the symbolism associated with it is very complex, but important to the mythos of the show and in understanding Dean. I hope I did a decent job laying it out. Thanks for listening, and I can't wait to continue this journey with you guys. I just love that. We get voicemails from our listeners who are so beautiful, elaborate, eloquent, and then they close it by saying like, I hope that, you know, I was able to sort of maybe convey a message. And I'm like, don't sell, you, don't sell yourself short here. This was amazing. This was phenomenal. Like, I feel like the best response would be, just to play it a second time so everyone really gets the message. <laughs> I know, right? I feel, I'm like, I feel, oh my God, I'm so, I have no more words. I got up because I was looking for a pen and paper. Like I was just <laughs> looking for something to write down my thoughts about this because I'm like, I am going to forget it. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for your voicemail. I absolutely loved you putting into words that the car is actually a religious artifact for Dean. My jaw dropped entirely. I loved that you explained that basically rebuilding the car was an act of faith. One thing that I do want to discuss a little bit is that is the relationship between anger and grief because in your message you're talking about them as if they're separate and 
In my experience, a lot of the time, anger is hiding grief. And not always, but I think that in moments of great anger, what I'm actually feeling is grief that hasn't been felt yet. So I guess this is just some food for thought about that, especially when it relates to Dean and his approach to anger. But we'll have, we have so many seasons to talk about Dean's anger. And I definitely have thoughts about that. And I cannot wait to hear yours. So thank you again. This voicemail took me on such a roller coaster. The absolute amazing execution of the metaphor and how you got it across and how you linked everything to it. And the idea of the car being on so many levels, a way to understand Dean on different facets of himself. I started to get to this point where in my mind I was like, well, then how can he keep loving this car when it represents so much pain for him? And then talking about the rebuilding it with Bobby and rebuilding the family and it no longer being John's and now being his and his family's put such a smile on my face. I was giggling like I am happy I am on mute, but it might be in the recording and I'm worried now. Ultimately, this was an amazing analysis. I am still blown away by the quality of this voice recording. Colette, you are clearly someone who is passionate about this and understands it. And it like just brings me so much joy to have people like you in the world. And we are also very lucky to have you in our Discord server. So thank you so much. <laughs> yes, thank you so, so much. Shall we move on to our crossroads? Yes. So I seem to understand that I sort of maybe stole your crossroads. Is that what happened? Listen, I kind of knew what I wanted to talk about for my crossroads deal pretty quickly this time. And then I came to write my notes down and I was like, oh, that's Mary's crossroads deal. I wonder if I have a backup and it did hit me pretty quickly. So ultimately, I think I'm thankful for this because now my crossroads gets to be done by you. I'm willing to bet an equal, if not better way. And I get to do my secondary one. So let me get started then. I wish that instead of the three different murders that we saw, we maybe just could have cut down on one of the murders. Just have two murders. Two murders is better than three murders. And then gotten more information about the Spirit Brothers. It's such a missed opportunity. It's just a lot of murder. I mean, that too. It's a lot of murder and a lot of very gruesome murder, as we discussed with people who have a fear of drowning, even those who don't. I feel like I want to know so much about these brothers. I think someone even asked during the live show in our chat was, do we know which of the brothers is older? Because I'm guessing, obviously, with Sam and Dean, it's always relevant to know who's the older brother. We don't find out. I would have loved to have learned more. And yeah, I think two murders was definitely enough murders. And what about your crossroads now? I thoroughly enjoy Bella as a character. And I think in this episode, she only further solidified herself as an amazing female character. Yeah, she hit some of the tropes, but I still find she's very well written. And I do like how self-sufficient she is and how she doesn't need to be like, you know, she is not made more by the men in her life. She is completely independent. And if anything, the men in her life drag her down. She's a badass. She is a she is like a definition badass female lead. And I'm so happy to have her on the show. I would have liked to maybe get a little more mystery from her. And you you did kind of allude to it in our long game. So now I'm kind of maybe stepping back a little bit learning more about her secret and why she might deserve what's coming to her in the eyes of the ghosts in this episode. But I would have almost have loved to have not known that 
and only like figure it out after they stop the ghost. Like it, I, I think it would have changed the story way too much, but had a way of them stopping the spirit, saving Bella, and then later on learning, oh, the reason the brothers were so mad was because of this altercation. And then they realize, well, wait, all these other people were involved in the death of a family member. What does that say about Bella? And then like cut on like, ooh, mystery. I don't I don't have any great wisdom to offer here because it's season three and it's the writer's strike. From a critical point of view, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why. I think that's the the downside of the crossroads deal is sometimes you can kind of explain away why things had to be a certain way or just were. In a dream world, this would have had a better writing team and more writers. Not to say the writers were bad, but it would have had a fuller writing team and would have been able to work normal hours and not be on strike and have gotten to put a little more into the episode. And too many cooks in the kitchen is a bad thing, but in some cases it can result in a better solution. Maybe getting Bella a little more, you know, secret, letting her unfold a little more slowly would help her character. Maybe it wouldn't. We'll never know. We'll never know, unfortunately. All I know is I want more Bella, so when's the next Bella episode? You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Colette for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward. And leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our January live event will be decided by our patrons. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. So with, with all that, that let's we... jump in. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. With all that? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>